It's with great joy we um, are present at the dedication of one of our own little ones, Caitlin Joy Baker. And I'd like to ask uh, John and Tanya, if they would, to come forward with their baby. And uh, as you can see, she's totally adorable. Hi. I've only gotten to hold her once, so this could be an adventure today, but uh, we're going to do it. Here's the word of God. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. And listen to this part. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Today we come to rejoice with John and Tanya in the gift of this beautiful little girl and to give thanks to God who is the giver of all life and the source of all blessing. Because Jesus invites the children to come to him, we bring Caitlin Joy to, to our Savior, praying for his blessing as a sign of the kingdom of God. And now, as parents, John and Tanya, you have offered Caitlin to the strong and tender providence of God and to the nurture of the church. We also, as members of this congregation, promise to share in your child's nurture and support your efforts in providing a loving and caring home. Our prayers will be with you and for you in making your task both joyful and fruitful. Let's hear the gospel concerning Jesus and children. People were bringing little children to Jesus to touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and put his hands on them and blessed them. And now to John and Tanya, I address this question. Will you as parents of this beautiful child, by God's help, Dedicate yourselves to the Christian nurture of Caitlin and bring her up in the worship and the teaching of the church that she may come to know Christ as Savior, be baptized, and follow him as Lord. If so, please say we will. Thank you. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to stand with me and respond to this question to the body of Christ. Will you, as members and friends of this congregation, Dedicate yourselves to be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ so that this child and all other children among you may grow up in the knowledge and the love of Christ our Savior. If so, please say, we will. Thank you. You may be seated. This time, uh, who, gets, who gets the mic? John. Okay, John's going to say a few words. God bless you, John. Morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> It's hard to describe uh, the profound feelings of being a father. I had several people try to tell me how wonderful it would be. Um, but Tanya and I w wake up every day for three months now uh, just amazed that God has blessed us yes. with this child. 
Um, we went back and forth a lot about her name, and of course, a lot of the names I threw out were just to get get at her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we came to Caitlin, we both knew it was the the name of our child, and then Tanya came up with Joy for the middle name, and we knew that was her name as well before she was even born. And just recently, Tanya looked up the name Caitlin and found out it means pure. So, this is pure joy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which we think is the perfect name for her. And we just want her to know God and yes. have a relationship with Him so that she can share His joy with the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Now, this is always the fun part for me. Come here, sweetheart. <laughs> Come here. Yeah, talk to everybody. Look at everybody. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Father, we bring this child to you this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that Caitlin Joy Baker would be blessed and anointed at this very moment, that her life would be a blessing to many, and that one day, soon, as she grows up to be a child, that she would give her heart and her life to Jesus, that she would be baptized, that she would follow you as Lord. I pray for John and Tanya, Father, as they raise this child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I pray that their home would be filled with, with pure joy and that every moment of every day they would know that the presence of Jesus is with them. So, Lord, we dedicate this child to you and we dedicate this family to you. And we pray these things in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Okay. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Go, John. There you go. There you go. We were told in seminary now many, many years ago that one of the great blessings of being a pastor is moments like these dedications, baptisms, weddings, funerals, all of those are passages of life and uh, extraordinary. And uh, it's so, what a joy to, as a family, to celebrate um, the dedication of Caitlin Joy. It was interesting, I didn't even realize this, my wife told me this, and you guys didn't know it at the time, but Caitlin Joy is also the name of Kate, Caitlin Joy Borowicki, born exactly seven years to the day. The same, so little Katie Borowicki, you know her, and they were, they were the same birthday, seven years apart. And the same noise, same name. So that's pretty cool as well. Would you uh, bow with a, for a word of prayer? Father, what a joy it is to um, witness once again uh, a child coming to you. Lord, uh, Caitlin doesn't really know what all of this is, but as she looked out over the congregation, she was looking at people that are going to be praying for her and loving her and telling her about Jesus. And Lord, I pray that... Um, 
the reality of that would just rest upon this child and their family today and in the days to come. And now, Lord, we have the extraordinary uh, joy of opening the Word of God to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who are lost and broken and lonely and hurt. And I pray, Father, that this Word would go out into our congregation, that it would fill every life, that it would fill, be, be filled with hope and with joy and with the good news of salvation. I pray, Father, for those who are here this morning who are hurting, who are feeling pain, who are feeling brokenness in their life, I pray, Father, that this word would again bring joy and promise and hope to each and every one of them. So bless us now, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe, probably not for you, <laughs> but it is for me, that this is our last message in 2 Corinthians. It's been 10 weeks. And as I told the first hour, um, I could preach on this book for another 30 weeks. It is so rich and it is so full. I trust that many of you have read faithfully uh, 2 Corinthians over and over again. Let the word get into you. I pray that these messages have been a blessing to you. And today I want to kind of wrap things up and look at that text that most people know comes from 2 Corinthians more than any other text. And that is when Paul complains about his thorn in the flesh. And God responds to him three times, my grace is sufficient for you. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But first I want to just kind of do a little review, um, uh, get a little backstory to today's message. Uh, most of you know that Paul wrote this book uh, about 50 A.D., and he wrote this book to the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth was a seacoast sea town, quite wealthy, a lot of people. Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. He's, Corinth. He spent longer there than any other church that he was establishing. And he established the infrastructure there. There was pastors and bishops and deacons. And, um, and then he went on to plant other churches. So he had an enormous love for this, these people. He spent more time with the Corinthian people than any other church. And he had this great love for them. So the letter he wrote them uh, contained three messages. The first was this. You need to know, church at Corinth, how much I love you. My heart is with you. I, you mean more to me than you'll ever know. I know we've had some disagreements, some conflicts. Sometimes I haven't felt the love coming back from you. But you need to know that my love is so sincere and so real. I love you with all my heart. That was his first message. The second message was in chapters 8 and 9. We looked at a couple of weeks ago, and it was about being generous. The church had promised to send a generous offering to the church at Jerusalem because they were extremely poor, and they hadn't done that yet. And Paul was reminding them of their promise to be generous. And he said, when you're generous, because God has been generous to you, when you're generous to others, it, it explodes in blessings that you can't even begin to imagine. And then the third part of the letter that he talked about was he warned them against false prophets and false teachers and false teachings. And um, that's what we looked at some last week. So today I'd like to begin with um, uh, the text and look and see what uh, God has for us here today from this amazing passage. Um, and I want to remind you of the key points that we have, that brought us up to this chapter 12. Uh, the first thing was we learned about that in Christ, God's answer to all of life's dilemmas, all of life's problems is yes. <laughs> Lord, is there a way that I can be forgiven of my sins? God says, in Christ, the answer is yes. 
Father, is there a way that I can be freed from the pain and the suffering that I experience in this life? God says, in Christ, the answer is yes. What about eternal life? In Christ, the answer is yes. What about pain and suffering in this world? In Christ, the answer is yes, there will come an end to that. I promise you that all things will be made new. Yes, 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 yes. All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. And then we looked at the power of forgiveness, how that it removes resentment. And we talked about how that the forgiveness confounds Satan. And, and some of you uh, asked me about that afterwards. I just want to clarify that. Um, Here's why forgiveness confounds Satan. One of Satan's greatest tools to help believers get off track is by getting us stuck in unforgiveness. And the reason that works so well is because unforgiveness is about staying stuck in my pain, staying stuck in my suffering, staying stuck in my um, resentment, staying stuck in all of those places. And when we're stuck in that and we're stuck about ourselves, we are not doing the work of what God has called us to be. So Satan loves to get us to, oh, you don't want to forgive that guy. Oh, you don't want to forgive what she said to you. That, that's, they, you you, you got to make sure they make amends first. You got to make sure they do the right thing first. And so Satan really loves us to get stuck in unforgiveness. Then we looked at the contrast between the old and the new. The old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, which is the covenant of works righteousness, the covenant of, of, of doing things to help God recognize that we are good, a sacrificial system, obeying all of the rules and commandments, all of those things, religion, that kind of old way of doing things, religion is always spelled the same way, and it's spelled this way, D-O. Religion is spelled do. What can you do to make God like you? What can you do to redeem your sins? Christianity on the other part, the new covenant, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, the new covenant is spelled, is spelled completely differently. It's not D-O, it's D-O-N-E. What we couldn't do for ourselves, Christ has already done in the cross of Jesus. What we could not do for ourselves, Christ has already redeemed us. So we found out that the old covenant, as good as it was, nothing wrong with the old covenant, we couldn't keep it, but the new covenant is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we just marvel in that. And then he talked about the old body and the new body. Our old bodies, those of you who are like me that are getting up in years, you say, my, my, my body feels like my tent's about ready to fold up, right? And that's what the Bible says. It's like a tent. It's temporary. Your bodies, I know you love them. I know you've had them a long time. I know they're really cool bodies. But they're tents and they're temporary and they're not going to last forever. But God says, I have a promise. I'm going to take something that is old and turn it into something new. Just like Jesus had this new resurrected body, one day he will take the ashes, your ashes that are scattered in the earth or the ocean, and he'll resurrect those bodies, put them with your spirit, and you'll have a new body, and it'll be eternal, and it won't be temporary. And God says, I promise you, again, all things will become new. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the contrast between the old man and the new life, the old life and the new life. The old life was based on how can I make God like me and love me? It's about being bent towards sin and self. Instead, the new life is something that is brand new. And we talked about that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a verse you've all known or many of you have heard. And it's, there's, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old is dead, the new has come. Isn't that a beautiful verse? If anyone is in Christ Jesus, all things become new. The old is dead, the new has come. And so in Christ Jesus, we have this new life. And we talked about how that means that we are recreated. We are reconciled. We are made righteous. And we are Christ's representatives. In Christ, we are ambassadors. Remember that from a few weeks ago? We are, as Christ's ambassadors, we are the highest ranking 
dignitaries given the relationship is God's given us the responsibility to take the good news of God's reconciliation through Jesus Christ. We're the highest ranking dignitaries from God, from heaven to the earth. That's who you are. And then we discovered this. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Now, if you remember nothing else from this sermon series, I want you to remember that phrase. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Now say that with me, okay? When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. And we talked about that's the case with relationships, with how we deal with each other in the body of Christ. We, because the Bible says you and I are brothers and sisters. We are mothers and sons and daughters. We are the body of Christ. So it, it has to do with how you d- deal with each other. It has to do with how you deal with people that are, are not believers. Especially be careful of, of marrying someone who's not a believer or going in business with somebody who's not a believer. We talked about that. But how that we are to bring, bring love and respect to people who don't, don't know Christ and how we relate to God. All of those are seen because when you know who you are in Christ, you'll know what to do. And we talked about that in terms of generosity, in terms of recognizing false prophets. And the bottom line is always this, that God has made you something absolutely beautiful, absolutely unique, absolutely spectacular in Christ Jesus. And when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. You'll know what to do in every area of your life. Finances, dealing with false prophets, dealing with anything. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at this uh, amazing passage in 2 Corinthians 12. We're going to read the first 10 verses, but I'd encourage you this week to read the last two chapters. Uh, we're finishing up the book, and chapters 12 and 13 will give you a bigger picture. But today I want to look at this very important subject of thorn in the flesh. Uh, we've all heard about it. Even if you're not a Christ follower, even if you're not a Bible person, you've heard this phrase, a thorn in the flesh, and that comes from this book in the Bible. So let's look at our text this morning. Uh, I'll be reading from the uh, NLT version, the New Living Translation, and uh, as I do, if you have your Bibles, take them out. You can read from the bulletin. It'll be on the screen. Uh, Your iPhones, your iPads, just don't do Angry Birds, but everything else is good to go. Let's read the text. This is God's Word for Hope Covenant Church today. Paul says, this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or not, or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to a paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. So Paul said, I I had that experience, okay? Now we'll talk about that in a minute. Now don't think that because Paul had that experience that you're supposed to have that experience. That may or may not be the case, but Paul said, that happened to me. Then we pick it up. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it at all. Paul's kind of interesting here. He's like most of us. He said, I don't want to boast about it, but that happened. (laughs) I don't want to brag about it, but that happened. It happened to me. It happened to me 14 years ago. And so even though he says, I'm not boasting, he wants to make sure that they know that this happened to him. Okay? So we pick it up there. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. 
So to keep me from becoming proud, and this is key, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now remember the context from last week. Um, Paul was talking about false teachers, false apostles, uh, false um, uh, philosophers that were coming into their church, whether they were Greek or Hebrew, but these people were coming to the church and saying, you know what, these are things, you're hearing this stuff from Paul, don't believe that, what you really need to hear is this. And Paul comes along and says, absolutely not, especially the Judaizers. The Judaizers said, Christ is okay, but he's not enough. You need Christ plus doing all the obedience of the Old Testament. Christ plus you got to do all the sacrificial, sacrifice the goats and all that. Christ plus something else. And Paul comes along and says adamantly, no, Christ plus anything is heresy. Christ doesn't need anything. Christ is all in and all. Christ is sufficient. Christ is everything you need. So that's what he was talking about. Now, this idea of this being caught up in the third heaven and the visions and everything, we know nothing about this except what you just read. There's no other context in which Paul spoke of this, so we know nothing of this. But we do know that something happened 14 years ago. And by the way, that was probably right when he came to Christ, right when he had that vision of the road to Damascus. Uh, that's probably when that happened. But somehow he was caught up in this vision into the third heaven. Now, the third heaven... The, the ancient Near Eastern mind, remember this 2,000 years ago, uh, what they saw was the air that we breathe is the first heaven, the space that you see, the stars, the sun, the planets, that's the second heaven, and God lives on the third heaven. Okay, so when you read that, that's what they're talking about. The third heaven, I got caught up in paradise, that's heaven. And I saw things that I can't even speak, and it was amazing. And Paul said, that happened to me. Now he's saying, you need to, you need to listen to me because I've experienced these things with God, and these false prophets haven't, and you, and you need to listen because this is true. I am this person that God has placed in this place to tell you about the love of Jesus. You need to hear this. And then Paul said, in order to keep me humble, God allowed, God gave me literally a thorn in the flesh. And that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. So three questions. If, if you're like me, I, when I read these texts, I always try to say, okay, now what would the guy or the gal sitting in the pew want to ask of this text? And so here's the three questions I came up, came up with. What is the nature of the thorn? What is the thorn? Okay. Question number two, what is the source of the thorn? I mean, do they come from Satan? Do they come from God? Do they come from both? Well, look at that. And the third thing is, what is the purpose or the reason that we experience thorns in the flesh? So the first question is this, what is the nature of the thorn? Now, what exactly was it? Um, a lot of speculation, nobody knows, because Paul never speaks about it again, but they talked about eye trouble, perhaps glaucoma or cataracts, something that was going on in the first century in the ancient Near Eastern world, the Mediterranean world, was there was a lot of um, research being done on ophthalmology. So around, the, around uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, in Corinth and in Philippi and some other major cities, 
there were doctors of ophthalmology that were discovering things about glasses, about surgery on their eyes. So there was a lot of talk and thinking about eyes. And so some people have thought that maybe that was Paul's ailment, but we don't know for sure. It uh, could have been headaches, migraines, or cluster headaches. It uh, could have been earaches, leprosy. Some have even suggested it might have been a bitter wife. I don't think you can get that from the text, but, you know, there I said it. Um, but in the text, the thorn is not just limited to a physical ailment. Paul also mentions four other things. He says, insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles. Insults, exactly what you'd expect. All Christians, if you've ever been vocal about your faith, you've received insults. Uh, hardships, which are circumstances forced on you, not anything you've done wrong, but reversals of fortune, things that are not your fault. That's part of living in a broken world. Okay, don't ever think that when you come to Christ, everything's going to be hunky-dory. When you come to Christ, what happens? You start swimming upstream from the world. The world's going this way, now you're going this way. So you're going to find trouble. And the little kingdom of man is always at conflict with the kingdom of God. So don't, there's going to be hardships. There's going to be persecutions because of your faith. There's going to be troubles or calamities or distresses. And the word literally means constant pressure on your life. So what Paul is saying here is that even though I had this physical thorn, and it was a physical thorn, he said, I've experienced all of these other things as well. Calamities, troubles, hardships, all of these things that you find in this broken world that we call the little kingdom, the kingdom of the world, all of these things you will find on this planet. So don't, be, don't think it's weird when you go through troubles. You're going to experience these kinds of troubles. So what was Paul talking about with this thorn? He was talking about a particular physical ailment. Now, he, he was thinking big, big picture too. It not, also includes shipwrecks and beatings and glaucoma or whatever else he was going. But all of those things. But Paul said there's this one particular physical ailment, and it's a thorn. Now, when you think thorn, you think of a rose thorn. You cut your finger. Oh, that hurts, you know. God, take that away, you know. And, you, you know, we all kind of whine at God a little bit. Oh, take that away, you know. I've got this or I've got that. I mean... When I, before I had my hips replaced, I couldn't walk 10 feet without enormous pain in my hips. And so many times I said, God, I, how can I serve you, you know, when I've got these going on? And he said, you know, well, go get some new hips. You know, that, they didn't have that 2,000 years ago. They do today. So here's Paul experiencing this tremendous pain, but it's not just a, a prick in his finger. The word thorn is the word scolops, S-K-O-L-O-P-S. Scolops, and scolops means literally a large stake, not a T-bone. I know what you're thinking, Bruce, not a T-bone stake, a large stake, um, the kind of stake that uh, Count Dracula would have used to impale, uh, you know, people that uh, were against him. So there's this large stake. So it refers to an intensity of suffering that you can't quite... So it wasn't just some little annoyance that Paul was going through. It was this immense, intense suffering that was with him every day. So Paul is saying, besides that intense suffering, there's this compilation of all sufferings and all injuries. And he said, this is what my life is, thorn in the flesh indeed. I mean, his thorn in the flesh makes ours look like nothing. So it was real, it was big, it was intense, and it was more than just the physical thing. It was all of the things that he had gone through, hardships, sufferings, all of those things as well. So that was the thorn in the flesh. So what is the source of the thorn? Where do we get it? Okay. Well, 
these weaknesses, pains, physical infirmities, infirmities that we feel, are they from God? Are they from Satan? Are they from both? Paul calls this thorn a messenger of Satan given to harass and discourage Paul. So one of the sources of pain and injury, not always, and it's hard to sometimes tell which, is God simply says, okay, you want to do it your way? You want to, remember, remember Satan is the God of this world. You know, he's the fallen angel. We live in this broken world because Satan is the God of this world. He's the one that's kind of maneuvering all of this sin and racism and anger and war and all of that stuff. And, you know, he's just busy doing all that stuff. And, and we think it's all just, you know, happens. No, no, no. Satan is doing it and we're cooperating. Human beings are saying, yeah, let's do that. Let's fight with each other. Let's be racist. Let's steal. Let's pillage. Let's do all of that. So there's this cooperation between Satan and those who are not Christ followers and this world is broken and it's hurting and it's bloody and it's terrible. And Paul says in the midst of that, there is a messenger of Satan given to harass and discourage me. Now, now, why do bad things happen? One of the big questions in this kind of message is, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, you've all heard that. You've heard sermons on it. You've heard discussions. But let me just review again why, what is the source of bad things on the earth or uh, pain on the earth. Okay, the first source of bad things, pain on the earth, is you. <laughs> you drink too much, you get in a car, and you kill yourself or you kill somebody else. So that is on you. Nobody else is making you do a bad thing. Nobody else is making you uh, cheat on your wife. Nobody else is doing, it's you. So part of the pain and suffering in life is about you. Part of the pain and suffering in life is not about you, it's about somebody else. Somebody else gets in a car, they drink too much, and they run, crash into you and kill you or killed your, ch your child or something like that. Some of the source of pain in this world is because somebody else has broken God's laws. And the third source of pain and suffering in the world is simply this. We live in a broken world where Satan is the one who's controlling things. Satan is the one who's floating around trying to get you to do this and you to do that, temptations and all that. He can't make you do anything bad, but he can tempt you. He can urge you. He can move you to do bad things. So those are the three sources of pain and suffering in the world. It's your fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's just because we live in a broken, dark, sinful world. Paul is talking about the third option of those three. These thorns, these weaknesses come from Satan because we just live in a hard, broken place. From Adam and Eve... We've introduced sin into the world and every generation, every human being that ever, ever has been born has acted out on that sin. We have a sinful, broken, angry, war-filled, race-filled world because we have not done it the right God's way. We've always done it our own way. That's why we live in a broken world. And this thorn, this weakness that Paul experienced was because Satan was allowed to say, okay, have it your way, here you go. And Satan did that. Similar to what happened with Job, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Sometimes God gives his permission. And you say, well, but why? We'll get that a little bit later. But there is always a why. If God gives his permission, you've got to remember that God is bigger than you. He thinks wider than you. He thinks more globally than you. He thinks kingdom of God more than you. So there's always a why behind it. Thorns and weaknesses can come from Satan. He afflicts us through his angels, his demons, his messengers. His aim is destruction and death and misery and doubt, just like with Job. He was hoping that Job would whine and complain and turn his back on God. 
but he never did. These thorns and pains can come from the enemy. Little kingdom, that happens all the time. Big kingdom, one year, one day we will be free from all that when we get to heaven. But it's not as simple as that, is it? Satan is not the only one at work here. God is at work. This thorn is not just the work of Satan to destroy. This thorn is also the work of God to redeem. Now let me say that again. This thorn that Paul experienced, these thorns that you experience, are not just the work of Satan to destroy you or discourage you. They were also the work of God to redeem you. Let me tell you what I believe that is talking about. It's what I would call the 50-20 principle. The 50-20 principle is taken from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Okay? You know the story, those of you that have been around the Bible. The story is that Joseph, uh, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, was uh, hated by his brothers. He probably was a spoiled brat, but he didn't deserve what they gave him. They threw him in a pit, left him for dead. He was rescued by some gypsies, taken to Egypt. He rose through the ranks and became one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt. So there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a drought all through the Middle East, except in Egypt because Joseph has been smart enough to store up grain. And so here comes the 11 brothers and dad and all their wives and cattle and kids. And they say, we're starving to death. What are we going to do? Can you loan us some money? Now, they don't know that Joseph is there. They think he's dead long ago. And here's what Joseph says to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Isn't that a great principle? You intended to harm me, brothers. You cooperated with Satan in that. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So what the 50-20 principle is that God takes these pains, these sufferings, these thorns, these, these daggers, these, these stakes in our heart, and he turns them into something good, something beautiful, something that is not broken, something that is beneficial, something that is kingdom of God instead of kingdom of man. So picture God kind of brooding over the earth. This is Satan's domain, but God, even Satan, has, can't do anything without God's permission, right? So he's, he's, he's floating, looming over the earth, and, and he's looming over the earth. He has this loving, redemptive presence with his children, with his people. He allows the thorn to keep Paul from boasting and pride. Just like Jacob, you know the story of Jacob, Joseph's father. Uh, Jacob was wrestling with an angel of God. And as he wrestled, his hip was dislocated and it was never, ever fixed. And so all through Jacob's life, he was going with a limp, you know, kind of like Chester, Chester. Uh, or Festus, oh, you guys are t- not too old to remember that. And he's just kind of limping along like this. And every time he limped, every time he had pain in his hip, it was a reminder that God is in charge, not you. Jacob wrestled with the angel and limped because he depended upon God. So my story is just like this. So as you know, in 1997, I confessed my gambling addiction to my wife and my counselor. And that started a series of things in motion. And someone once asked me, they said, whose fault was this? Was this your fault? Was this Satan's fault? Is this God's fault? You know, whose fault is this? And of course, the natural answer to that is yes. (laughs) Because Satan tempted me. Now, I could have said no. You say no every day to Satan. Some of you don't say no. You say, well, maybe. But you can say no to Satan every day when he tempts you, when he whispers in your ear. I said yes. 
I pressed into that. I sinned. I broke God's heart. I broke God's law. I hurt my wife. I hurt my family. I hurt my church. I hurt all of these people. That was on me. It's not on anybody else. And you can't even blame Satan. Satan just put the temptation in the way. I grabbed hold of that. But here's the good news. God 50-20'd this all over the place. He took that broken, sinful thing that I did, and there was nothing good in that. But when God took that, He turned it upside down. He redeemed me. He redeemed my family. He redeemed my church. And He gave me, thank God, 13 more years of ministry in His kingdom. That's, that's God. That's 50-20. That's not just, oh, poor me. I've got a prick in my finger. I've got a stake in my heart. It's saying, no, there's something bigger than that. God says, I promise you, whether that stake is your fault, somebody else's, or just because you live in a broken world, I promise you that if you'll yield yourself, if you'll cede yourself to me, I promise you I will take that ugly, dark, black thing and I will make something glorious out of it. That's the promise of Genesis 50:20. C.S. Lewis wrote this, God whispers to us in pleasures, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pains. You see, both Satan and God, and now this is a play on words, so you can laugh if you want to. Both Satan and God had a stake in Paul's and our sufferings. Satan wanted him to throw in the towel. Just like Satan wanted Job to throw in the towel. He wanted him to quit, to whine, to complain. Oh, I've got cancer, I've got this, I've got that, I've got a stubbed toe, I've got a bad wife, I've got to just whine and complain. He wanted all of that. So Satan wanted him to throw in the towel. God wanted to redeem Paul from pride and make him dependent upon God. Remember, and this is a take home if you'll remember this, Satan does nothing to God's children that does not, that, that God does not design with infinite skill and love for your good. Please hear this again. Satan does nothing to God's children that God does not design with infinite skill and love for your good and his glory. So finally, what is the purpose of the thorn? Well, the obvious thing is the first thing that Paul says. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. In the NIV, it says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's the best translation of the word, and that word sufficient is powerful. The word sufficient means this, literally, that you will get an exact measure at exactly the right time what I desire for you. When you have a, a thorn in the flesh, whether it's a prick on the finger or a stake through the heart, God says, I will give you the exact measure of grace. And remember, grace is God's pouring out his love, his lavishing his love on you, undeserved as it is, lavishing his love and mercy and grace on you. God says, I promise you, I'll give that to you in the exact measure and the exact moment that you need it. My grace is sufficient for you. Oh, but Dwayne, you don't know how painful my relationship is with my wife. My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus said. He said it to Paul. He says it to you. He says it to you every day. I, I will give you grace in the precise exact amount that you need it and in the moment that you need it. My grace is sufficient for you. You know, God can lighten a burden in really two ways, right? And these are just common sense. God can lighten your burden from your thorn in the flesh, from your stake in the heart. God can lighten your burden by diminishing the actual weight of the burden. 
by taking the thorn away or by taking, removing the stake from your heart. God can do it that way. Or he can strengthen the one who bears it. God almost always in Scripture does the latter. Because when God strengthens the one who is bearing this pain, you become a testimony and you cry out to the world that God in me is enough. Christ in me is enough. Christ in me is bigger than this prick in my finger. Christ in me is bigger than this stake in my heart. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I mean, we saw, when we saw Mike George pass away and Cindy pass away, and tra- we saw the testimony of these people, especially Cindy. She said, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. God has not removed this stake in my heart, but he has promised to make all things new. And guess what? He did. God has promised you, I know that the stake in the heart hurts. I know the prick on the finger hurts. I know that that thorn in the flesh is painful. But I promise you that God has a purpose and a plan. And he desires to make us more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Paul's strength was God's rival. But Paul's weakness was God's servant. So it is for you so it is for me. Another purpose for this thorn is to humble you. I, I know. I, I know you hate that as much as I do. I, God, can I be humble on my own? No, he says you need some help, you know, obviously. <laughs> Humility is more important to God than your, your freedom from pain. Can I say that again? Humility is more important to God than your freedom from pain. I remember sitting... Um, Short, this is maybe a month after I'd confessed my gambling. I'd just, I was leaving my counselor's um, office. Sherry was at work, and I had nothing to do for the rest of the day, and I came to this parking lot, the edge of the parking lot, and to the right was how I used to go to the, one of the casinos I'd go to, and to the left was to go home. And I remember sitting there. I sat there for 15 minutes. Cars had to go around me. They honked. I didn't even hear them. And I said, God, I can't do this on my own. I felt like I was wrestling with the angel of the Lord. I felt like I was Jacob. I felt like I was Job. I felt like I was Paul. I know it sounds silly and corny. That's exactly how I felt. And until I finally said, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. You're going to have to turn the steering wheel because I can't do it. Everything in me says turn right, but you say turn left. I can't do this. And it wasn't until I humbled myself that God gave me the strength to turn that wheel to the left. Humility is more important to God than freedom from pain. And then there's something else, and it's the last thing we want to share this morning. It's this. The purpose for this thorn is that Jesus Christ be glorified. Jesus Christ be glorified. God designed you to be a showcase for his power. God designed each of you to be a showcase for his power. Remember, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You're the highest ranking dignitary in heaven from God to the earth with a message of reconciliation. And sometimes we bring that message of reconciliation with a stake through our heart because of this broken, sinful world. Sometimes we come with this message of reconciliation when we have no idea what we're doing except we're just faithfully saying, here's the Lord Jesus. All I can say is this, I could not live another moment. I could not breathe another moment with this stake in my heart without God's love. We become a showcase for his power. 
can, can we just for a moment let God be God here? I, I know some of you, like me, you really desire to be God. You know, that's, your, that's what you want to do. But look, can we let God be God here? If he wills to show Jesus in our weakness instead of our escape, God knows best. Let me say that again. If he wills to show Jesus in our weakness instead of our escape from pain, God knows best. Now, a best example of that, if, you're, if you don't believe that to be a theological principle, read Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of those great passages that talks about men of faith, men and women of faith, and it gives a list of all these men and women of faith. But here's what he says about these men and women of faith. He said, by faith, some escaped the edge of the sword. And you say, ah, that's me. I want to escape the edge of the sword. That's kind of faith. He said, but others by faith were killed by the sword. Some by faith stopped the mouths of lions. Others were cut in half. Some were mighty in war. Others suffered in chains and, and, and imprisonment. In other words, we don't know. Sometimes it's a, you don't have to go through any pain today, and other times it's, yeah, for my glory and for the kingdom of God, I need you to experience this stake in the heart and care, still carry that message of reconciliation of Jesus Christ. The ultimate purpose is that Jesus Christ is lifted up, not that you're free from pain. The ultimate purpose is how we carry that message of reconciliation. Let God be God. He knows what he's doing. Let God be God. Now, the deepest need that you and I have in weakness and infirmity is not quick relief. I know that's the way it feels and that's what we want, that's what we pray about, we whine about that. But the deepest need that you and I have is the absolute confidence that what is happening to us in that moment is part of the greater purpose of God in this universe. And that's to bring glory and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, we confess in this subject, we, we don't know a lot because it is so counterintuitive, so countercultural to recognize that we're going to experience pain and thorns and suffering in this world, in this little kingdom. But Father, you've told us that when we do experience those, whether it's of our own doing, someone else's, or just because we live in a broken world, that you've told us that we have the opportunity to see, to allow Jesus to be seen and known. Then those opportunities, we, have the, we, have, we, we can allow you to, to show off your love and your grace in the midst of brokenness and hurt. And so, Father, that is my prayer for myself and for this amazing church that every person that is sitting in here would stop worrying about their comfort and start just becoming a showcase for the love and the grace of Jesus. Lord, that we would not shy away from broken hurts and feelings and pains, that we'd simply say and hear the good news that my grace is sufficient for you in exact measure and in the exact moment. My grace is sufficient for you. Father, would you grant that to your children today? I thank you, Father, for this church. I thank you for their hearts. And I pray that the truth of 2 Corinthians would stay with them for the rest of their lives. Because when each and every person in this room, when each one of them knows and understands who they are in Christ Jesus, they will know exactly what to do. And we pray this in your precious name. 
Amen.